I want to begin by, even though we're only going to go over it a little amount of time, wants to tell the story of Joshua 22 again, because I just think it does us good to continue to hear the story. But you remember, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh were given an allotment on this side of the Jordan, the east of the Jordan. They had conquered this territory in the days of Sihon and Og. And these tribes asked for these territory, and it was given to them on the condition that they go with their brothers and fight for their brothers and help drive out the nations from this land, then they could come back to their land on the east of Jordan. They have done that. They have been faithful in fighting the Lord's battles. And in Joshua 22, Joshua bids them farewell. He tells them to love the Lord and to walk in the ways of the Lord. But he tells them to go back home to their family. They return to their family. But when they come to the border of the, uh, of the land, they come to uh, the Jordan River, they build an altar. And they build an altar. The other tribes hear this. And the other tribes are very upset. Because there was to be one altar in the land where people brought their burnt offerings and peace offerings and sacrifices. And so they hear this and they assemble for war. But they send Phinehas, uh, the priest, and one man from each of these tribes to go and confront these brothers. And ask them, what have they done? When they get there, they said, listen, what are you doing? Why are you adding to our trespass? Don't you know what Achan did and what happened at Baal of Peor? And there you find one person or a few people sinning and calamity falls upon everybody. And if the, your land is not good enough for you, come over with us and worship the Lord our God. And these tribes respond, the mighty one God, the Lord, the mighty one God, the Lord. He is witness and you can be witness that we have not built this offering for burnt offerings or peace offerings. But we have built it lest your children say to our children in times to come, you have no part with us. You're not one with us. The Jordan River separates us. And so you don't worship the same God. And this altar is to be a testimony of the fact that we worship the same God that you do and that we are one people with you. Now, that's a paraphrasing of the story. Always reading the exact words of it uh, are better. And if any point my story diverged from that in significant ways, uh, follow the biblical story. But after that response, uh, how do these how do these ten men who were sent to uh, to question the men of Reuben, Gad, Manasseh, how do they respond to that news? They, they rejoice. They rejoice in the news. They didn't want them to do the wrong thing. They wanted them to do the right thing. And they rejoice and they were pleased of that. And the Bible tells us uh, that uh, in verse 31, when these, um, these tribes go back, and uh, they, they tell this among their people in verse 33. They are pleased with this. And they praise the Lord. They bless the Lord. Now, one of the things that often happens in situations like this 
And it doesn't happen here, or if it does, you tell me if I'm missing it. Sometimes when you have a case like this, where you've had a controversy, and there's rejoicing at the end, there is an eating of a meal together. And then, you know, kind of everybody goes their separate ways. But the eating of meals and making of a covenant, I don't think I just forgot that, did I? I mean, that's not there, is it, in this particular case. But, but what other questions did you all have about Reuben, Gad, Manasseh, and about the altar of witness what other thoughts or questions uh, did you all have? Sarah? It just occurred to me, so the copy of the altar of the Lord, which altar are they copying? I, I, I would say that this would probably be the altar of burnt offering because this would have been the one they would have seen. Okay. And this would have been the one that most of the other people had seen. The altar of incense was in the holy place, and that would have been something observed only by the priest. And it was the altar of burnt offering that was the general offering for the offering of burnt offerings, the offering for burnt offerings and peace offerings, and these offerings. Uh, now there were there was in connection with the Day of Atonement, there was some blood associated with the altar of incense, but that was not normal. That wasn't the normal thing. You had a question too, I thought. Well, I, I was just, uh, uh, I think it's important to notice that uh, the tribes on the right side, that land was conquered while Moses was still alive. Yes, yes, it was. And divided up, it seems, when Moses was alive. You remember when the allotment is given in chapter 13, when they, Joshua, when they start giving the allotment, they they deal with this in Joshua 13 before they get to any of these tribes over here because yeah, that was really done in the past. That was done in the time of Moses. So, okay. Anything? Well, read Joshua 23. Joshua 23 and Joshua 24, um, there have been people who don't have as high of a view of the Bible who view this as two separate accounts uh, or, or, or of the same event just being told to us two different times. I don't think that's the case. I think Joshua 23 falls more under Joshua's farewell address as he's addressing the people and calling upon them to serve God. Well, Joshua 24 would be more of a covenant renewal. But there are similarities. Both of them... Tell the story of the history of Israel strongly emphasizing the role of the Lord. One of the first things we said in our study of the book of Joshua is that God is the key character of Joshua. You will see that particularly here in this section. Just notice how often you see the phrase the Lord or see the name of the Lord and particularly one phrase that is used over and over is the Lord your God. But what use does he make of history? And what applications does he make? We want to try to answer these kinds of questions. Uh, but let's, let's read the text and get it before us. Um, Joshua 23, now it came about after many days when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all enemies on every side 
And Joshua was old, advanced in years, that Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders and their heads and their judges and their officers, and said to them, I am old, advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is He who has been fighting for you. See, I have apportioned to you these nations which remain as an inheritance for your tribes. With all the nations which I have cut off from the Jordan even to the great sea toward the setting of the sun. The Lord your God, he shall thrust them out from before you and drive them from before you. And you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Be very firm then. To keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. So that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. In order that you may not associate with these nations. These which remain among you. Or mention the name of their gods. Or make anyone swear by them. Or serve them. Or bow down to them. But you are to cling to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. For the Lord your God has driven out great and strong nations from before you. And as for you, no man has stood before you to this day. One of your men puts to flight a thousand. For the Lord your God is he who fights with you just as he promised you. So take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. For if you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations, these which remain among you, and intermarry with them, so that you associate with them, and they with you, know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive out these nations from before you. But they shall be a snare and a trap, and they shall be whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off the good land which the Lord your God has given you. Now behold, today I am going the way of all the earth. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. It shall come about that just as at... All the good words which the Lord your God spoke to you have come upon you. So the Lord will bring on you all the threats until he's destroyed you from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. When you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God which he commanded you and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you and you will quickly perish from off the good land which the Lord your God has given you. Now, I may have missed something, but I have these in my notes. But the phrase that the Lord your God is used in the following verses. Now, if I put the verse up there more than once, that means the phrase appears there more than once. The phrase, the Lord your God, is used twice in verse 3 and twice in verse 5. 8, 10, 11, 13, it's used twice, 15, twice, and 16. 
Now, I counted 13 times that phrase is used in 16 verses. The Lord your God. That is not even including other instances like verse 1 when the Lord had given rest to Israel. Other times that the Lord is mentioned where it doesn't use this whole phrase, the Lord's your God. If you count all of those, I don't know how many references that you have. David? I've got it in verse 14. Okay. Uh, you know, toward the end of that, that, not one word of all the good words. Yep, you're right. You're right. So uh, we're up to 14 now. Uh, in all, uh, verse that verse and number in all. So you're right. Uh, so, and, and I may have missed others. The likelihood is I missed more than something that I put in there that's not. I think that's more more common. But what the Bible is, what Joshua is, and, and you particularly see it in these speeches, is a theological view of history. He is not just discussing history randomly, but he is discussing what I mean by a theological view, what God is doing in history. What God is doing in history. And what God is doing with his people. This is the focus of the biblical story. But Joshua calls together, the text says that the Lord had given Israel rest. Now, Paul called attention to this in one of the questions. That same statement was made in 22 verse 4 when the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh were sent home that the Lord has given you rest. Um, can you... What is the concept of rest in the Old Testament? We want to come back to this too at a later point, but David, you're going to give it a stab. Uh, not doing work. Like okay, sometimes it can be, yes. You're not to do not any work, work yes, <laughs> on the Sabbath. It, it is, um, that, that is correct. Um, there is, I would say too, there's something contained in this word about, and I don't know if I'm wording this best, but kind of just the idea of there's some kind of peace with God. There's some kind of right relationship with God. You know whose name in the Bible is very close to the Hebrew word for rest? It'll make sense when you what we say shalom. Shalom is peace. Shalom is peace. But when this person was born, this statement was made. This one shall give us rest from our work and from the toil of the hands, our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. It's Noah. In. And so Noah's name, he makes a play on his name there in Genesis 5, verse 29. But it's interesting that uh, in, in a couple of the passages um, 
Paul mentioned, for example, 2 Samuel 7, 1. God had given David rest from his enemies on every side. Rest comes at different points. It comes when they conquer the land. It comes after the judge defeats an enemy. It comes uh, to bring David peace in building the temple. Uh, we're we're going to explore that more. And we're going to bring Hebrews 3 and 4 into that, Lord willing, before we finish our class on Joshua. But we just wanted to say a little bit about that. But Joshua's old. He says, the Lord has given you rest. He calls in verse 2 for elders, heads, judges, officers. It's probably not an assembly of every single person in the land. But he calls for many of the leaders of the land. He stresses what the Lord has done for them in these verses. Particularly notice that both verse 3 and verse 10... Uh, this, this section right here, talking about what God has done for Israel, begin and end with the statement, The Lord, the Lord your God, has been fighting for you. The Lord your God has been fighting for you. Israel was told, we're fighting nations that are stronger and mightier than we are. They were told that from Deuteronomy 7 verse 1. Now when they have won the victory, they may be tempted to forget that those nations were stronger and mightier and think they've won the victory by their own power. But victory only comes by God in His power. I love this statement from Psalm 44. Psalm 44 in verse 3. For by their own sword they did not possess the land, and their own arm did not save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your presence, you favored them. Psalm 44 verse 3. The Lord... Your God has been fighting for you. They defeated these nations stronger than they were because of the power of God and because God was fighting for them. In verse 5, The Lord your God, He shall thrust them out before you and drive them out before you and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. They do possess it. They are in the land and there is more to be possessed. And the Lord will continue to drive them out, continue to give Israel more and more land if they continue to trust Him and push back the Canaanites who are there. One of the questions that Paul also asks about is, is some of the things... Some of the things that Joshua tells the people here remind us of what God told Joshua at the beginning of the book. What were some of those points? Be strong and courageous. Okay, be strong and courageous. That was kind of worn out almost, wasn't it, in Joshua 1? I hate to say that. 
But, but, but it was used over and over. You saw that phrase, be strong and courageous in verse 6 of Joshua 1. In verse 7, in verse 9, in verse 18. Be strong and courageous. Now, in this particular passage, you do not find that whole phrase repeated. But when the Bible says in the New American Standard, in verse 6, be very firm, in verse 6, 23, verse 6, the words be very firm are the same words translated, same word translated be strong back in Joshua 1. Be strong and courageous. Joshua was told, now Joshua is telling the people you be strong. The word used, by the way, is the root of Hezekiah's name. Hezekiah's name means the Lord is my strength and he and, and he uh, says, you be strong, be strong then and do all that's written in the book of Moses. Was, was there anything like that before? You know, Joshua was given that instruction, wasn't he? In Joshua 1, um, he was given that instruction. Let's look over to uh, Joshua 1 in verses 7 and 8. Since I've turned to it so many times, it probably does me good with my four markers. I, I have a Bible for just such a time as this. And, um, but Joshua 1, verses 7 and 8, Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. Verse 8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. So, listen to the law of Moses meditate on it repeatedly, continually, day and night, the text says, and do not turn from it to the right or to the left. We use those terms right and left in a sense more conservative or more liberal. That comes from really uh, English government. Uh, uh, You get those phrases. That's not the idea here. But the idea, it does convey the idea that you, you just do what it says and you don't turn off the path in any other direction. You just follow what the Lord has told you. Don't go to the right. Don't go to the left. Do you see that, that Joshua uses that same expression in telling the people here, be strong, keep and do all that's written in the book of the law so you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. Now, uh, just a second. Uh, Anne's got a question. There's one other person that was told, listen to the law, don't turn to the right or left. Do you remember? In Deuteronomy 17, when the king wrote a copy of the law, 
he was told the same kind of thing. Don't turn from it to the right or left. I think it's in verse 20 of Deuteronomy 17. And well, I was just saying another repeated phrase in chapter one. He says that um, I'll be with you, and no one will, no man will be able to stand before you. And then in twenty-three, he says, you know, I drove these nations out, and no one was able to stand. Yes. In verse nine, we'll use that same phrase. Um, twenty-three, verse nine: No man has stood before you to this day. And so, yes, what, what, what Anne's calling attention to is beyond verse 6 and beyond what it says about the law of Moses and, and Joshua's farewell chart. I mean, he, he's, he's invoking a lot of things that were said to him in Joshua 1 as he is instructing the people. But Joshua 1.5 is picked up there in Joshua 23 verse 9. Probably that's good to write those on the board 23 verse 6 about the law you see that in Joshua 1 7 and 8 and in verse 9 no man could stand before you and that was you in 1 verse 5 remember we were told in 7 12 after the sin of Achan you're not going to be able to stand before any man uh, but now, but after they took care of the sin, once again, God's promise went into effect. Um, what sins would you say in Joshua's farewell address he is most concerned about? Deborah? People that they didn't drive out, intermarrying, okay. drawing them away. Intermarrying with the nations that they didn't drive out. And that is a very great concern. We particularly see that come to the forefront in verse 12. Uh, associating with these nations, marrying from these people. I think that's correct. And also there was another sin that was closely connected with that sin. Which idolatry. If you intermarry with these people, you're going to end up worshiping their God. Um, I get the question um, quite often, uh, do you think it's a sin for a Christian to marry a non-Christian? And and I don't like to stop the answer with a yes or no in that particular case. Because I would be hard-pressed to say that was a sin on the basis of 1 Corinthians 7 and verses 14 or 12 through 16 uh, and passages like this where you see Christians and non-Christians married. You would be hard-pressed to say that itself is a sin. But when you see the whole of biblical revelation, Old Testament and New, you do see an emphasis on marrying someone that shares your faith. When God told Israel that they were not to marry these nations, I know that our modern interpretation likes to see race everywhere. That's not what's going on. 
there was no problem with Boaz marrying Ruth when she shared her faith. There was no problem with the people marrying Rahab marrying in the land of Israel when they shared their faith. It was a thing about faith. It wasn't about race. That's what it was about. And, and God is concerned that His people marry people who, are, who love Him and who serve Him. And if you marry someone who doesn't serve the Lord, that increases the, the chances for you not to serve the Lord as well. And the argument Nehemiah makes when he, the people were intermarrying in his day, in Nehemiah 13, verses 25 through 27, Nehemiah said, if these kind of women led Solomon astray, do you think you're wiser than he is? Good question. Did it happen to Solomon? Did it happen to us? And I do say, I, I do think that one of the biggest benefits from some of the preaching I heard growing up is just while none of the, only one that preacher that I can ever remember hearing a lot in my youth said he thought it was a sin for a Christian to marry a non-Christian. Most of them would say the same thing. It wasn't a sin. It was very unwise. But just their emphasis on marrying a Christian was very helpful. And it was also an encouragement that before I get married, I want to make God a priority or why would this person even be interested in me uh, to begin with? David, I thought you had a hand up a second ago. You may, may not have. Okay. Um, but, so, intermarrying with these people and worshiping their gods. And you notice in verse 7, in order that you may not associate with these nations, these which remain among you, or mention the name of their gods, or make anyone swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. He's kind of comprehensive in his description of these idols, isn't he? You don't, you don't mention them, you don't swear by them, you don't serve them, you don't bow down to them. You, you don't show them any allegiance at all. Um, you know the term Baal? May, while we think of it as a false god, it can be master or lord. And, um, and sometimes it is used of the true God in the Bible. I think Jeremiah 3.14 is the passage which says the Lord is your Baal, He is your master, He is your husband. But, but often because it became so associated with false gods, they didn't mention that name. Uh, in Hosea 2.17 envisions a day when you're not even going to use that name of your true God because you're going to be so diligent to avoid idolatry. And uh, you're not to mention them, you're not to swear by them, serve them, or bow down to them. But what you are to do in verse 8 is to cling to the Lord your God. Cling to the Lord your God. Now, that particular word cling in 13.8, as they are told to cling 
to God. 23 verse 8, excuse me. That word cling is also used in verse 12. In the verse that, that Deborah alluded to about clinging to these nations and intermarrying with them. So what you find with this word cling is two options that are presented before the people. You can cling to God and you can cling to the nations. Two different possibilities for two different results. By the way, you know a verse that uses this same particular word that's translated clean. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Translate cleave in some versions, but it's the same word translated cling here. Okay? And just like you cling to your wife, you're supposed to cling to God. But some, as a substitute, may cling to the nations. But let's look at the text in verse 8. But you are to cling to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. For the Lord your God has driven out great and strong nations before you. As for you, no man has stood before you to this day. And that's what Anne was emphasizing just a moment ago. No one has stood before them. Uh, by the way, another passage that used this kind of expression was uh, Joshua 10 verse 8 as well. Joshua 10 verse 8. But he says in verse 10, one of you puts to flight a thousand. For the Lord your God is he who fights for you as he promised. One of you puts to flight a thousand. Now that would look pretty strange on the battlefield. To see a thousand men running and you think, oh, there's got to be an army coming after them. And here comes one man running after them. One guy with a bugle and a torch. <laughs> well, it reminds us of Gideon, Sarah is saying. Uh, but that's about what they did in that case. But it's, that couldn't have happened. If you reflect on that, and that happens, be thankful to God. It's proof that God's fighting for you. You didn't do that on your own. I don't care how big the guy is. If it's Samson, you know, still, it's going to take the help of the Lord if you're going to defeat a thousand men. He did. He did defeat a thousand men, yes. But it's going to, it took the help of the Lord, too. The help of the Lord and a good jawbone uh, that it took there in Judges chapter 15. But one of you puts to flight a thousand. But, but that is that is one of, that kind of language is the language of the blessings of the covenant if the people were faithful. Um... And, um, for example, in um, Deuteronomy 28, verse 7, Deuteronomy 28, verse 7, the Bible is discussing what's going to happen if the people are faithful to God. 
And uh, in Deuteronomy 28, verse 7, The Lord your God will cause your enemies to rise up against you and be defeated before you. doesn't use the same words, but it says this. They shall come out against you one way, and they shall flee before you seven ways. They all march in in a line. When they see they're defeated, they run out any way they can. It's every man for himself. And that's Deuteronomy 28.7. A lot of this language is the language of the covenant. Well, what else? What else do you see? I want you to see too that history is used by biblical writers as an appeal to be strong to be faithful, to serve the Lord. He uses what God has done for them as a call to encourage greater faithfulness. And he begins to apply this theological view of history. He applies it and emphasizes what God has done. In verse 11, take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. That was said to the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh in 22.5. And it said here, love the Lord your God. In verse 12, for if you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations, these which remain among you, and intermarry with them, so you associate with them, and they with you, know for certainty the Lord your God will not continue to drive out these nations before you. Do you see how that punishment in verse 13 fits the crime in verse 12? As we said, Israel has won the land. There are still pockets of resistance that each tribe has to face. And Israel is told to continue to drive those people out of the land. Continue to drive them out. But if instead of driving them out, instead of that, they cling to those nations, they intermarry with those nations, and associate with those nations, if they do that, then verse 13, no, God will not continue to drive them out. If you don't do this, if you don't trust me, if you sit there and fraternize with the enemy, then I'm not going to drive them out. I'm not going to do it. Apart from your submission to me and your willingness to stand and trust me and not associate with them. It is always, always a temptation for God's people to become like the world, whatever the world looks like in our day and time. And I want to tell you, sometimes it's not, it's not easy not to be like the world. Because sometimes the world's way of thinking the world's way of doing things is so pervasive we don't even recognize it. And, and we are not called to just go to a monastery to live separate lives. Now, some in effect may because of physical illness or things have situations similar to that. 
but, but as a whole that is not our calling it is to be in the world but not stained by the world and that isn't easy but we have to resist the temptation to be like them so the other nations when they did that became a substitute for God exactly like pointed out there yeah. in verses 8 and 12 they're told to cling to God but if you cling to the nations then they're substituting for me and that goes back to the Ten Commandments you shall have no other God yeah. before me yes that's right that's right and if they substitute these nations for God, God's not going to drive these nations out. And notice the terms he uses in Joshua 13, or Joshua 23, 13, for what these nations will be. There'll be a snare, there'll be a trap, there'll be a whip, there'll be thorns. Until you perish from all this good land the Lord has given you. Now some of those terms, numbers, uh, numbers, 33 Numbers 33 verse 55 I believe it is uses some of these terms to describe the nations if you don't drive the nations out this is what will happen we see the same thing in Judges 2 verse 3 God says, therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. If you don't drive them out, they're going to be oppressive to you. Now, God said, you utterly destroy the Canaanites. I know that commandment may have seemed merciless. To many people in that day, it may have seemed merciless to the people of Israel who executed the command. But God knows if you don't, it is going to do a lot more disaster than it will if you eliminate them. If you let them live and you intermarry with them, you're going to be corrupted by them. God's commandments have a purpose. Even in a commandment like that. I mean, if they, the Israelites cling to those nations and became like them, they became those nations and they became worthy of being driven out. Yes. And, and I mean, it's that same same idea. That Absolutely. They become that which God hates. And, yeah. Well, just like God says in Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, at the end of those chapters. If you act like this, the land's going to spew you out, vomit you out, just like it vomited them out. And, and that's what does happen in your story. The land spewed them out because they were disobedient. And every promise of blessing that God gives us is a reminder, every promise of blessing that comes true is a reminder that God's promises of judgment will also come true. And vice versa. Every promise of judgment that comes true is a statement that God's promise of blessing will come true. And you see that in 14 through 16. Now behold today I'm going the way of all the earth and you know in your hearts and in all your souls in all your hearts and all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. Not one word has failed. 
All has been fulfilled. Not one of them was found. This is again a statement. I made a statement Sunday night in the sermon that when God says something, it's going to happen. And I used the example of rebuilding Jericho, but we could have used this example. God promised to Abraham 600 years before this, maybe, maybe longer than that. God promised to Abraham, I'm going to give you the land. Not one word failed. And God kept his promise. If God keeps his promise of blessing, God will also keep his promise of judgment. In verse 15, it shall come about that just as all the good words which the Lord your God spoke to you have come upon you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the threats until he has destroyed you from off the good land which the Lord your God has given you. So, this speech, Joshua's speech, at the end of his life, he is so so worried about the people not driving out the nations, intermarrying with these nations, and worshiping their gods. And he tells them, before the sin even begins, he says, this is going to be the consequence of your sin. You're going to be driven out of the land. And indeed, all that Joshua warns against will happen. And a lot of it won't take very long. God in His mercy doesn't drive them out completely at first. But it doesn't take very long. Um, In verse 16, when you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God... You are he, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them. The anger of the Lord will quickly uh, will burn against you, and you'll perish quickly from all the good land which the Lord your God has given you. Um, I wanted to mention we we mentioned we had this same kind of thing in Joshua seven. The word transgress, it was used to refer to Achan's sin in Joshua 7 verse 11 and Joshua 7 verse 15, I think. I think 15 is right. No, 11 is right. But this word was translated pass over over 20 times in Joshua 3 and 4. So Joshua 3 and 4, over 20 times, over 20 times, this word is used just for crossing over the Jordan River. The water's drying up, people cross. It's crossing a barrier, crossing a boundary, crossing into uh, other territory. It is the word for transgress. What we do when we transgress is we cross the boundary markers that God has set up. We, we cross the lines that He has given us. We step into somebody else's territory. Uh, all of these are ways just to describe sin. I know sometimes when you have a sermon, it's hard to sum it up in a few words. What would you all say about that sermon? What thoughts? Like he's just trying to be very encouraging to them, like Moses and God were to him. Yes. He's trying to be encouraging. 
in trying to create thankfulness in people. Even when he presents a discouraging picture, he's doing it so the people will learn to do the right thing. Uh, it is interesting to me when you have blessings and curses in the Bible, the curses always seem longer than the blessing. But don't you think that probably, realistically, in most areas of life, we are motivated more by warnings of bad things than promises of good things? Probably that's the case. And uh, I think that was probably the case with Israel here. Now, I don't know if Paul's going to be able to get your questions for Sunday or not. Let's try to go at least through 15. Uh, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord, Joshua 24, 1 through 15. And then the next class, try to finish that and make some more application. I think we'll have a, we may have a class or two at the end where we can tie in a couple of other things from Joshua. But, but thank you all very much. It needs it needs some help. So yeah, but it's so pretty. Yeah, I haven't I haven't turned it in. Almost a year. I'm on vacation the rest of the week. I may do that tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> going on vacation, huh? Well, I'm, I'm not working. I'm not actually going anywhere. Uh, so I hear you. <laughs> hey, it's nice just to but stay home sometimes. It, it was weird because I woke up spontaneously. I set no alarms today. I woke up at. 5 a.m. and laid in bed and tucked It felt really nice. I did not see your time. Oh, you know, I did. Do you know the weeds? Marcus and Chris don't.